Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a strawberry margarita. What are you having, Jenny? I'm drinking a peach daiquiri, and on today's episode, we finish our Lifetime Movie Month with the kidnapping and imprisonment of Colleen Stan. Colleen was born December 31st, 1956 in Eugene, Oregon. On May 19, 1977, then 20-year-old Colleen was hitchhiking from her home in Eugene to a friend's birthday party in Northern California. She was picked up by Cameron Hooker and his family. Colleen would hitchhike often, and on this day, she declined two rides before getting into Cameron's blue van. She would later say she felt confident in doing so because Cameron's wife, Janice, and their infant daughter were also in the vehicle. At some point during the drive, Colleen got a bad feeling, and when they stopped at a gas station for her to use the bathroom, she said, quote, a voice told me to jump out a window and never look back, end quote. Colleen instead calmed herself down and got back into the van. Once they were in a more secluded area, Cameron put a knife to Colleen's throat. Her head was then forced inside a homemade wooden box, which was designed to prevent light, sound, and fresh air from getting in. Colleen was taken to the hooker's home. She was strung up by her hands from the basement rafters, whipped by Cameron, and left blindfolded and suspended while the couple had sex in her presence. That night, she was kept chained up inside a crate-like box in a sitting position. Colleen was tortured and locked in a box 23 hours a day. She told Closer Online, quote, I was stretched on racks, electrocuted, whipped until I bled, and tied up by my wrists, and left to hang for hours on end, end quote. Eight months later, in January 1978, she was given a quote-unquote slave contract by Cameron and forced to sign. Colleen was then referred to as Kay, was forced to call Cameron master, and was not allowed to talk without permission. Cameron also led her to believe that she was being watched by a powerful organized crime group called The Company, that he was also part of. He claimed that The Company would punish Colleen and harm her family if she tried to escape. In view from her box, propped up by Colleen's belongings, was a photo of who is presumed to be Mary Elizabeth Spanik, a previous victim whose body was unfortunately never found. Cameron and Janice married in 1975. Prior to the kidnapping, Cameron and Janice had agreed that Cameron could have a slave to torture and take part in sexual bondage and essentially take Janice's place in this. In their agreement, Cameron would not have penetrative sex with this slave. To get around this agreement with his wife, Cameron would rape Colleen with objects. At some point during her imprisonment, the Hooker family moved along with Colleen to Red Bluff, California. Inside their mobile home, Colleen was kept locked in a wooden box kept beneath Janice and Cameron's waterbed. In order to avoid punishments, Colleen complied with Cameron's demands. Cameron began to trust Colleen and would even let her jog unsupervised, do yard work, take care of his children, and help him build an underground dungeon for more quote-unquote slaves. To the outside, the arrangement looked like a couple with a live-in housekeeper. Shockingly, in 1981, Colleen was allowed to visit her family unaccompanied, but did not ask for help or let them know about her situation out of fear. Her family thought she was involved in a cult due to her homemade clothes, lack of money, and absence of communication over the years. 
Because of that, they did not want to pressure her, fearing she would stay away forever. The next day, Stan returned for a second visit with Cameron posing as her boyfriend. According to Colleen, following the visit, Cameron feared that he had given her too much freedom and locked her in a wooden box under the waterbed where she remained in the box 23 hours a day for the next three years. She was forced to use the bedpan in order to use the bathroom, which she positioned under herself using her feet. It was later stated in court that the couple's children were told, quote unquote, Kay had gone home. However, once his children had gone to bed, Cameron would take Colleen out of the box to feed, torture, and rape her. She was reportedly not allowed to make any noise and had to lie still in the dark with little air to breathe. During the summers, the temperature in her box would rise to over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Colleen remained hopeful by focusing on all her happy memories of her family and friends. In 1983, Colleen was allowed out again and given more freedom. She was even allowed to get a job at a local hotel as a maid. Around this time, Cameron shared that he wanted Colleen to become his second wife, which Janice was against. Janice viewed Colleen as her rival. But during the summer of 1984, Janice began feeling differently and told Colleen that the company was not real. Janice confided in her pastor and following his advice, the women fled along with Janice's daughters. Colleen later told People Magazine, quote, I don't know if he was going to kill us and get someone else to replace us. That's what news clips said. But obviously, he said or did something to treat her that made her fear for her life and made her decide that we needed to get out. So we did. She took me to her parents' house while Cameron was at work, and I called my father, end quote. Janice then drove Colleen to a bus station, and at the station, Colleen called Cameron to tell him she was leaving. She remembers Cameron sobbing after hearing the news. Colleen who was now free, did not immediately contact the police, but continued to call Cameron regularly. During the trial, she stated that she did this to give Hooker a chance to reform at Janice's request. Three months later, Janice reported her husband to the police. She informed Lieutenant Jerry D. Brown of the Red Bluff Police that Cameron had kidnapped and tortured Colleen and murdered Mary Elizabeth Spunkhut who had disappeared on January 31st, 1976. Authorities were unable to locate the remains of the woman. Due to the lack of physical evidence, no murder charges were ever brought. Though Janice had second thoughts about reporting her husband and even helped him destroy some of the evidence that would have convicted him, she ultimately cooperated with law enforcement. Cameron's trial began in 1985. The defense team even brought in a psychiatrist who tried to make the argument that the brutalities Colleen had suffered were in reality little different to the drill new Marine recruits underwent each day, an argument that Judge Clarence Knight interrupted. Janice testified against her husband in exchange for full immunity. She described herself as, quote, the kind of person who gave it in so someone would love me, end quote. Janice shared that starting with her first date, she had been tortured, brainwashed, and referred to as a quote-unquote whore over the years by Cameron. 
This included whippings, chokings, and underwater submersions to the point where she almost died. Janice claimed she only took part in the torture because she was also being abused and was afraid of Cameron. She further stated that she survived their relationship by compartmentalizing her emotions. Colleen also testified and evidence against Cameron included the head box, photographs of Colleen in bondage, a copy of the slavery contract, and the coffin-like box she was kept in. He was sentenced to consecutive prison terms totaling 104 years for sexual assaults, kidnapping, and using a knife in the process. After the verdict was announced, Judge Knight thanked the jury for rejecting the defense psychiatrist's claims and then went on to declare Cameron Hooker, quote, the most dangerous psychopath I have ever dealt with. He will be a danger to women as long as he is alive, end quote. At the time, Colleen's experience was described as, quote unquote, unparalleled in FBI history. Following the trial, Colleen received her degree in accounting and volunteered for the Reading Women's Refuge Shelter. She was married several times and had a daughter. Due to her confinement, Colleen suffers from chronic back and shoulder pain. In 2009, Colleen published a book about her life titled The Simple Gifts of Life. Janice went on to become a registered associate social worker and has worked as a mental health professional. Both women changed their names and still reside in California. Originally ineligible for parole until 2023, Cameron had his hearing date moved up seven years to 2015 by California's Elderly Parole Program. On April 16, 2015, his request for parole was denied and he will be eligible for another hearing in 2030. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, California officials contacted Colleen and advised her that they were looking into possibly granting Hooker parole in March 2021. Instead of a parole hearing, authorities scheduled a hearing to decide if Hooker should be classified as a sexually violent predator or SVP, which would result in his civil commitment to a state mental facility. Being deemed a sexually violent predator is an exception to California's parole law. Normally, parole begins immediately upon release from prison, but when an SVP is committed to a state hospital, their parole is suspended until they are no longer labeled an SVP. After being postponed due to an attorney's COVID diagnosis, the trial for Hooker has been set on October 23, 2023. Either a judge or a unanimous jury will decide whether Hooker is an SVP. In September 2016, Lifetime aired Girl in the Box, a TV movie based on Colleen's case. Following the movie was a two-hour documentary titled Colleen Stan, Girl in the Box, and featured interviews from Colleen. Colleen is now a grandmother, and every year she and her family celebrate the anniversary of her escape and survival with a party at the beach. Del, what are your thoughts on Colleen's imprisonment and case? I think this is one of the wildest cases that we've covered recently. Just from the beginning of just, she had a suspicion that something was wrong and she kind of went against her gut and returned to the car. That just started off a sequence of events that she likely couldn't even imagine. Janice is one of the people in the story that... I just have no sympathy for whatsoever. I understand that in her mind, she has rationalized her role in this. But to me, it's 
insane that she was able basically to get away with it by claiming abuse. Cameron, I agree with the judge. He is an absolute psychopath and he is someone who seems to create entirely different world for himself where people are subservient to him and he doesn't have to follow the rules of engagement with other people and it's absolutely disgusting and the fact that he essentially used his kids and created just a very toxic home life for them by bringing in a kidnapping victim is just disgusting. I think one of the things that just is mind-boggling to me is the fact that frequently he was giving her like additional freedoms and people looking in would think that she was like a housekeeper. It's like, I need to like just hear more from Colleen as to just like what was going through her head when he would go like back and forth. Like he would say 23 hours a day in the box one day. And then afterwards he was letting her get a job and essentially be away from the house for long periods of time. And while I do think that he is absolutely despicable, I am not in agreement with the sexual violent predator type statues and the civil commitments that come along with that. I think that if you definitely want to have a registry or some sort of enhanced parole system, but I don't think that we should have a situation where someone can be convicted finish their sentence and be moving on to the next part of it, which is parole or release, and then come behind that and say, well, now we are committing you to a psychiatric facility. I don't think that's right. I definitely... I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but that doesn't seem very constitutional. It definitely seems like you are punishing someone twice for the same crimes. And I don't think that's right. So I completely disagree with California statute. I think that there are better ways to go about it. And if it is a situation where you wanted to keep someone in jail for longer for their crimes, that's when you go back and you look at the different minimums that you have set for crimes. And maybe you need to change that or add that to certain crimes. I don't think you should just lock someone up in a mental health facility because you deem them to be dangerous. But those are my thoughts. What are yours? I agree with the hooker becoming an SVP. I think it's odd. And I know California is often criticized for, I guess, different like parole rules and like prison rule, legislative rules, different sentencing, I guess, is really what it is. And I find it kind of odd to, I don't know, it seems almost like a not special treatment, but I don't know. It's to me, he just needs to be in jail for the rest of his life. I think he's made it plain and clear. I think the judge made it clear. I don't know what else really needs to be done. I think in this case for him, just because he's older, he doesn't deserve parole. I'm sure there are tons of people in the California correctional system that, you know, are older and are more deserving of parole or even more deserving to be put in from jail to some type of facility, prison to a facility. I think Cameron Hooker is one of the most despicable people 
we have talked about on this podcast hearing about the torture that Colleen had to go through just makes my stomach turn it's sickening he clearly has no respect for women I think he definitely is a psychopath it's amazing that Colleen had to that she survived she was imprisoned off and on for seven years and three of those years was her just having to live in a box and be out for one day it's a for one hour a day it's truly amazing that she is alive the strength the resiliency of the human mind and spirit is a beautiful thing it also does really break my heart too like you were saying Del, with her saying she got a bad feeling and knowing that she didn't accept rides from two other people and it is obvious that Cameron Hooker knew what he was doing bringing his wife and daughter along he has the capacity to know how to get what he wants from someone. As for Janice, I don't know how exactly I feel because I do believe that she was also a victim. To me, someone like Cameron Hooker, I can't imagine he would be this abusive and violent with one woman, possibly two, if he did kill Marianne, which it seems like he did, and then not be violent towards Janice. I think she probably was fearing for her life and a lot of their relationship and just going along with him. Now, I don't know. She could have at any point tried to go and get help. And it is interesting that apparently I, there's like a few different stories about what he said or did that made her want to get help or to escape and let Colleen go. But I guess it kind of makes me turn my head when she, if it is him wanting to take Colleen as a second wife, that that was her breaking point. But I get, of course, like not to blame the victim or to be like, well, why didn't this person that's being abused leave because we all know it's not as simple as that. But I wanted to mention this statement from Michelle Gallietta. She's a professor of psychology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. She described Janice as absolutely a collaborator, but she stopped short of calling her a psychopath in her own right, saying that, quote, these are not psychological questions. They are moral questions. You don't get the impression from any data that she has a lot of psychopathic traits, more that she was so locked in that she ceased to have independent thoughts end quote, which I can see for sure in the level of, you know, abuse and manipulation and torture that was going on in that house. It is gross to me to know that he had daughters and I don't know, what was he thinking of them and how was he treating them? What kind of father was he? I would be really curious to hear from his kids. Oh, I wanted to mention too, that defense psychiatrist what is that person talking about by trying to say that Colleen's torture was similar to what new marine recruits have to undergo at that point I mean there was so much evidence against Cameron Hooker I don't think they should have been trying to defend his actions in any way I I guess I don't know it doesn't make any sense to me and I'm really glad that that judge Clarence Knight was 
saw through that bullshit and applauded the jury for seeing through that too. It's a wild, really upsetting case. And to hear that it was like kind of unparalleled in FBI history, I feel like it probably still is to this day. We're going to talk about a few more people that were kidnapped and held captive, but I haven't heard many stories like Pauline's. I agree with you. I think that because of the severity of which she went through, luckily this is fairly rare. And hopefully the police were able to use this case as like a teaching like mechanism to help prevent this in the future and be able to prosecute it in the future if it ever happens again. So we mentioned that there are some other similar cases to Colleen's. Let's take a look at just two of them. On October 15th, 2018, 21-year-old Jake Patterson abducted 13-year-old Jamie Claus from her home in Barron, Wisconsin. Patterson had attempted to kidnap Jamie from her home on two other occasions, but left after seeing activity in the home. He eventually forced his way inside and fatally shot Jamie's father, James. Jamie and her mother, Denise, were hiding in the bathroom when Denise called 911. Patterson then shot and killed Denise before binding Jamie's wrists and ankles and dragging her out of the home. Police arrived four minutes after the call, but Jamie was gone. Patterson would later say that their police cars drove past him on the road. He then drove Jamie 70 miles away to a cabin in Gorton, Wisconsin. Jamie was rarely let out of the cabin and was forced to sleep in the same bed as Patterson. Thinking that Jamie was too afraid of him to escape, Patterson did not use any special locks on the doors or other protections. On January 10th, 2019, Patterson told Jamie he would be gone for a few hours. Before leaving, he placed Jamie beneath his bed and boxed her inside using his belongings. When he left, Jamie forced her way out from under the bed and escaped. She ran to Jeanne Nutter, who recognized Jamie from the news, took her to a neighbor's house and called the police. Jamie had been held captive for 88 days. Police pulled over Patterson's vehicle and he quickly admitted to his crimes. He later told Arthur that he had seen Jamie get off of a school bus outside of her house while driving home from work and, quote, knew that she was the girl I wanted to take, end quote. He pled guilty to two counts of intentional first-degree homicide and one count of kidnapping. He was sentenced to the maximum of two consecutive life sentences in prison without the possibility of parole, plus another 40 years for the kidnapping. In June 2019, he was also officially registered as a sex offender. Jamie lives with her aunt and uncle, who says she is doing good and enjoys dance and her school activities. Next, we'll look at Stephen Stainer. On December 4, 1972, 7-year-old Stephen Stainer was abducted from Merced, California by convicted child rapist Kenneth Parnell with help from Irvin Edward Murphy, a man described as quote-unquote trusting, naive, and simple-minded. Murphy helped Parnell lure Stephen in by asking if his mother would donate to his church. Parnell then drove Stephen to his cabin in Cathy's Valley, California, which Stephen did not realize was, was only several hundred feet away from his grandfather's home. 
Parnell molested Stephen and told him that he now had legal custody of him because his family could not afford all five of their children and that they did not want him anymore. Parnell pretended to be Stephen's father and began calling him Dennis Parnell. He enrolled Stephen in school and they moved around California over the next few years. Stephen said he cried a lot at first but stopped because it upset Parnell. Parnell allowed Stephen to drink and come and go as he pleased. Stephen was often left unsupervised, and he would later say that he could have used those opportunities to escape but did not know how to get help. Parnell continued to rape and sexually abuse Stephen, but as Stephen got older, Parnell began to look for a younger child to kidnap. He attempted to use Stephen to help with this, but Stephen later said he sabotaged the attempted kidnappings. On February 14, 1980, Parnell and a teenage friend of Stevens kidnapped five-year-old Timmy White in Ukiah, California. Stevens said, quote, I couldn't see Timmy suffer. It was my do-or-die chance, and I also would be coming home for doing something positive, end quote. On March 1, 1980, while Parnell was at work, Stephen left with Timmy and hitchhiked into Ukiah. After they were unable to locate White's home, they went to a police station. Parnell was arrested the next morning and both boys were returned to their families. He was convicted of kidnapping and sentenced to seven years in prison, but was paroled after five. He was not charged with sexual assault. In 2004, while in his 70s, Parnell was sentenced to 25 years to life for attempting to buy a four-year-old boy for $500. Stephen went on to get married and have two children. He also worked with child abduction groups and spoke to children about safety. On September 16, 1989, Stephen died in a hit-and-run motorcycle accident. He was only 24 years old. Timmy White, then 14 years old, served as a pallbearer at Stephen's funeral, which was attended by 500 people. So, do you have any thoughts on either Jamie or Stephen's stories or any captive kidnapping stories you've heard of? I mean, both of these cases are so tragic and just shows that You never know what other people are thinking, what other people's intentions are, and you may unwittingly become the object of someone else's obsession and desires that lead to tragic consequences, not just for you, but unfortunately the people around you. In Jamie's case, her mother and father, who undoubtedly were just trying to protect like their daughter, were murdered by just a crazed man who is a creep and absolutely disgusting. And the fact that he was so willing to confess just shows that he knew what he was doing was wrong. He just didn't care and did it anyway. And the same thing when it comes to Kenneth Parnell. The fact that he was seemingly a pedophile who... It's just so gross to think about, like, one of his victims got too old for him, so he started to look for another victim. It's absolutely disgusting. And, you know, it's definitely tragic that uh, Stephen passed away so young and wasn't able to live a full life after the trauma that happened to him when he was only seven years old. Honestly, I think of the 
Ariel Castro kidnappings when he kidnapped three women. Uh, we've covered that on a previous episode when thinking about just the horrors that people go through when they have to endure just not having their freedom. I think that's something that a lot of people take for granted, including myself, where you don't think of, you know, situations where someone else is controlling your every movement. And I can only imagine it's one of the most terrifying things that someone can go through. And, you know, my heart definitely goes out to all the victims of it. What are your thoughts? I remember when Jamie's case was in the news because it was fairly recently to hear Jake Patterson talk about how he saw her get off the bus and knew that was the girl he wanted. That's so chilling. It's so upsetting to get into the mind of a predator like that. And then to hear that he thought Jamie was so afraid of him that he, you know, could just control her and do what he wanted is disgusting too. And she and Steven are so brave. I don't even know. I can't even imagine what I would do in that kind of situation. I would hope that I would try to fight as much as I could and be strategic and try to get out. But it's a horrible situation that no one, absolutely no one should ever be in. And it is telling though, like you said that he immediately said that he was guilty and you know, that he, knew what he did was wrong. And I'm glad that he's going to be in jail for the rest of his life because I feel like he would probably do this again. And it's good to hear Jamie is doing well. I think she might be 18 or so now. So I'm glad, you know, she's keeping a private life. I'm glad. And I hope she goes on to fully heal and live a wonderful life because she deserves it. Steven Stainer is such a upsetting story, kind of like with Colleen, like knowing that his grandfather lived so close but he didn't know that and he was so young when he was taken and people weren't necessarily talking about kidnappings and this stuff in the 70s so he didn't know how to go about getting help and again when abusers set up an environment they don't make it easy for you to leave even though you have a million opportunities like he kind of did being left alone and to hear him try to help Timmy out is really like that it breaks my heart and it breaks my heart knowing how his story ended and Timmy White actually died relatively young too it's just tragic that they both had their lives cut short and this man Parnell is still committing crimes into his 70s it's just it's so upsetting like words can't even describe it I wanted to mention this real quick. I guess that Parnell was also watching Stephen too, if he knew that his family had five children. I don't know if maybe that's something Stephen told him when they were talking, but to first off be kidnapped and then to think that your family doesn't want you anymore and you have to live a life of sexual abuse is so heartbreaking and devastating to hear. and. It's so, it just breaks my heart. Like I said, that Stephen had to go through this at such a young age. And something I wanted to mention is that one of Stephen's siblings, Carrie Stainer, actually went on to be a serial killer. He committed the Yosemite murders, which is on my list to talk about at some point, because there's definitely some poor police work in that case. But that's kind of like another interesting layer to look at when it comes to, I think, Stephen's story and how his family was potentially affected. Not, of course, to say that 
his brother being kidnapped and abused went made him go on to be a serial killer or anything. But I know, I think he felt, Carrie felt very deprived of attention from his family because of that. And I'm sure that had a negative psychological impact on him. It's really crazy, creepy to think about. Adjusting back to the real world after being held hostage can be just as difficult as abruptly leaving it. Upon release, many hostage survivors are faced with transitioning from conditions of isolation and helplessness to sensory overload and freedom. This transition often results in significant adjustment difficulties. Hostage and kidnapped survivors can experience stress reactions. Typical reactions occur in Thinking, which include intrusive thoughts, denial, impaired memory, decreased concentration, being overcautious and aware, confusion or fear of the event happening again. Emotional, which includes shock, numbness, anxiety, guilt, depression, anger, and a sense of helplessness. And in their interactions, which include withdrawal and avoidance of family, friends, activities, and being on the edge. Extended periods of captivity may also lead to, quote, learned helplessness in which individuals come to believe that no matter what they do to improve their circumstances, nothing is effective. Colleen received extensive therapy following her escape. She said, quote, I didn't feel any anger towards Cameron or Janice while I was held captive. The only emotion I felt was terror. But once I started to feel safe again, the anger came, end quote. She also said she survived by, quote unquote, shutting off my emotions. She continued with, quote, but when I was thrust back into the world, I had to learn to use them again. And that was very difficult for me, end quote. Colleen did face struggles post-escape as she had several failed marriages and struggled to maintain a job, all of this likely stemming from her trauma and PTSD. Stephen Stainer also had a difficult road ahead of him following his escape. Stephen had trouble adjusting to a more structured household as he had been allowed to smoke, drink, and do as he pleased when he lived with Parnell. In an interview with Newsweek shortly after his escape, Stephen said, quote, I returned almost a grown man, and yet my parents saw me at first as their seven-year-old. After they stopped trying to teach me the fundamentals all over again, it got better. But why doesn't my dad hug me anymore? Everything has changed. Sometimes I blame myself. I don't know sometimes if I should have come home. Would I have been better off if I didn't? End quote. Stephen underwent brief counseling but refused additional treatment. In a 2007 interview, Stephen's sister said that her brother did not seek counseling because their father said Stephen, quote unquote, didn't need any. She added, quote, Stephen got on with his life, but he was pretty messed up, end quote. He was bullied by other children at school for being molested and eventually dropped out. Stephen began to drink frequently and was eventually kicked out of the family home. And his relationship with his father remained strained for the remainder of his short I did want to mention this quote that Colleen has to end this on a little bit more of a, a lighter note. She said, quote, I thoroughly enjoy my freedom. Always, always, always. Life today is good. You have to learn how to live in the now and not let the past drag you back. End quote. Del, do you have any thoughts on how victims have to adjust to society? I mean, it makes complete sense. It's definitely things that you have to do in order to mentally survive traumatic situations and 
I mean, I can only imagine the things that someone has to do and includes shutting off your emotions. It includes that learned helplessness and all the other things just to make sure that mentally you are at least okay. And I think Steven's situation is definitely sad. The fact that he didn't get, it seems, all the counseling that he likely needed and the fact that the children at school were essentially bullying him for something that he had no control over. It's definitely a sad situation. I love that quote by Coveline. I love that she has been able, seemingly through therapy and just really understanding her trauma, has been able to be in a more positive headspace and really know and understand that she was a victim, but she doesn't always have to maintain the mentality of a victim. That's really nice to hear. What about you? It is. I know I keep saying this, but it's very sad to hear about Steven struggling. And it absolutely makes sense as to why he was struggling and why he did reject counseling or why his family, his father particularly, wasn't necessarily supportive of counseling. And we have to remember this was in the 80s too. So counseling and trauma were not talked about the way they are now, even for people, for victims like Stephen, where it's obvious someone went through something horrible. People weren't necessarily as accepting of that and understanding. I love this quote by Colleen too. It's really great to hear how she's come out on the other side and how she does want to talk about what she's gone through. I'm sure that probably is kind of helpful for her too. I've heard that from other victims or people that have experienced trauma, talking about it with the public or, you know, like in a book is really helpful. When I was doing some research, she actually was commenting on the Jamie Claw situation and saying she's going to need support and hopefully she will get whatever treatment that she might need. And I understand where Colleen is coming from, too, when she says, like, I wasn't angry then. I was just, like, scared. I completely understand that. And then once you're safe, that's when those emotions come back in. And that's when you have to deal with the aftermath. Shutting off your emotions. How else do you survive in that kind of situation? Like we said, she was held captive for seven years. And yes, she had some freedom in those seven years, but it wasn't, she couldn't live her life freely or to the fullest. She couldn't see her family. She couldn't do much with her life. I'm sure she had dreams that were ruined because of Cameron Hooker. So it's wild to think that someone can change your life so drastically and I don't want to say it means nothing to them, but they ruin your life for their benefit. I mean, that's really it, like what it comes down to when you think about it. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the kidnapping of Colleen Stan. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the Zodiac Killer. As always, stay safe. Stay safe.